Welcome back to MVP Podcast, Season 3, Episode 18. We have Chris Seventy. Did I say that correctly? Yes, you did. Okay, perfect. Um, on the show, thanks for giving us the time. Uh, coming to us from the D.C. area. Correct. So. so the same weather is here in Wisconsin, as I was told. Yes. So we welcome to the show. Thank you very much for being here and giving us the time. Well, thank you, Marcus, for having me on this, the podcast. I'm happy to uh, be here and discuss more than weather, but uh, to discuss real estate because it's an area that I can talk about all day long. So I know uh, we could be here for days talking about real estate, but yeah. uh, excited to be here today. Yeah, and you've been in for, you said, over 25 years. Correct. Um, hitting yep. multiple different facets of real estate. Mm -hmm. One being notes, which I think we should touch on on the show because yep. not a lot of people understand what notes are and how those are utilized within real estate. Um, so if we can get into notes on that, as long like obviously I want to know the road and the path that took you to where you're at because mm -hmm. what we're finding with a lot of our guests is they'll start out as teachers or um, they'll just start out in general construction or something not even close to real estate. Mm -hmm. um, and then find their way into the wonderful world and then they're stuck. And I'm gonna say stuck positively, not negatively uh, in real estate. So while we jump into it, why don't you just tell us what you do now and how you got there into the position you are? Yep, no, absolutely. So today we uh, manage uh, five real estate note funds. So we go out and raise money um, from accredited investors and put them in syndications to go out and buy pools of notes. Uh, so that's kind of quick version of what we do. We'll talk about notes on the road. Uh, I think it's important also to understand how I got here because it is a, a very similar story to most people, I think. And people are at very different paths in their career. Uh, and it's good to show you know some of those stages. Uh, so back, like you said, 25 years ago, uh, I graduated college uh, with civil engineering degree, and I thought I'd be designing bridges and buildings for my career. And uh, when I was applying for jobs, uh, the, you know, I realized I'm like, do I really want to sit in an office and just design bridges all day long? Uh, you know, from that <laughs> perspective. Uh, so uh, a lot of engineers also do go off into construction management. And the reason they do that is one, you're on project site, so you get the cool, you know, build cool buildings. And for people who don't know what a construction manager is, the best way to explain it is, if you walk by a job site, and you see the guy in the white shirt and tie, not doing anything, that's what it is. Um, but they actually do a lot of things. Uh, so that's what I did for uh, 15 years. Uh, I managed uh, construction projects. And I was working for a large, one of the largest general contractors up in the Boston area. Uh, so I got to work with a lot of experienced people and a lot of people who are a lot smarter than me. I know some people always go back and forth about, you know, education and working in corporate America and just going out on your own. For me personally, that experience of seeing how uh, large businesses operate and manage and systems and processes, which as an engineer, I'm, you know, that's what type of person I am. It was very helpful to get where from where I am today. Uh, after about 15 years, though, I got completely burnt out because working, you know, 60 plus hours per week. And there's a joke of going over to the dark side um, when you're in construction, which is going to work for a developer. Um, you know, <laughs> that's considered the dark side. So I went and kind of worked for the dark side, working for a developer. And my boss at the time 
was, you know, talking to me. He's like, so, you know, what are you doing for, and this was about a decade ago. He's like, what are you going to be doing for, you know, your retirement? I'm like, well, I got 401k. And he just started laughing at me. And he's like, why aren't you buying real estate? I'm like, well, I don't have time. He's like, you got to start buying real estate for yourself. He owns some rentals in San Diego and other places. And it kind of hit me. It's like, yeah, actually he's kind of right. And I love real estate. So uh, my wife and I built our primary residence and we acted as a general contractor on it. And then after that, we had a lot of equity uh, in our property. So we went and started buying some rentals in the DC area that needed rehab. So we'd rehab them and get them, rent them and hold them for cash flow. If anyone listens to bigger pockets, it's the Burr strategy oh, yeah. uh, is what we're doing. Uh, but for those not familiar with the DC market, it's highly competitive and it is extremely expensive. And at the time, my wife, you know, we still do, but we had two young kids at the time and spending our weekends trying to manage these projects because anyone who's ever tried to renovate anything, if you just let your contractor, you know, do their own thing and they're never going to show up, you need to be there every day and so forth. So we we're spending a lot of our weekends managing these projects in with kids and sports. It became too much. And yep. my wife finally came and they said, no more, <laughs> you know, no more rentals. So, okay. But she didn't say no more real estate. So, you know, the engineer me, I was like, <laughs> the loophole, the loophole. Yes. The loophole. <laughs> so, uh, I was on bigger pockets and I found, so I started looking at tax liens because tax liens were something that you know, it's like, oh, you just buy the lien, don't have to do anything. But the group on bigger pockets is tax liens and notes. And this was around 2016 timeframe. And all of a sudden, I'm like, you know, I got really pissed off at myself because, you know, I've been in the business for 15 plus years. I never knew about notes. And, you know, most people know about private lending, which is a type of note, but most people didn't know that you can go buy a distressed mortgage from a hedge fund at, you know, 50 cents on the dollar and basically try and work that out. And that's where the light bulb went off because the way it works is, you know, it's really, uh, you know, you can do it from anywhere at any point in time. Um, so, you know, my wife goes to bed early, I can do it at night, uh, from that perspective. So it fit me perfectly in that type of business, um, for, you know, how I got to where I got today. And over the last six years, I started at zero and now I've bought over 500 notes. Wow. wow. That's impressive. Mm -hmm. And, and how did you jump in? Obviously the concept came to you. Yep. But how are you? Okay, I'm I'm used to managing these tangible products. I'm seeing the building get built. I'm seeing yep. us plan out this development of what it's going to be. We've got permanent plans to look at. Yep. And now you're in the secondary market where you're buying something that's not tangible. I mean, yep. yes, you could yep. hold the note, but it's mm -hmm. it's a secondary market. How did you yep. make that leap? Mm -hmm. or get comfortable with, with making that shift in your, your business? Yeah. So let me first kind of, again, for people listening, explain what a note is, uh, just so they understand you know, the concept of it, because most people think you're buying the real estate, which you're not. Uh, for anybody who's ever owned a property that has a mortgage on it, there's two documents uh, as part of it, that transaction. There's the note, which is the IOU, which is saying I'm borrowing from PNC Bank, and I'm just using them as an example because most people 
who know PNC is, I'm borrowing $250,000 from you. And I'm basically going to use that money to buy a house. Um, so this, the note is the IOU. And then there's a collateral a document, either a mortgage or deed of trust, depending on the state, uh, that what that does is that collateralizes the note. That basically is the handcuffs um, that tie the note to the property, which means if you don't pay me the money, this mortgage, I can basically has terms that I can go remedy by foreclosing or taking the property back. So most people think of a note and mortgage in the same instrument. They're actually two different. Um, one's the IOU and the other is if you don't meet the terms of the IOU, basically I have that property. So I just wanted to explain that. So when you mentioned tangible, um, yeah, because it is a little different, but you still really are you know, looking at the asset because with notes, you know, there's first position and then there's second position, which are lines of credit. Um, and we're not going to get too much into differences between the two, but you know, when you're buying a note, you know, a, we always try and get the borrower repaying on that loan because it's more profitable. We can talk about that later, but you need to understand what that asset is worth. Now you don't get to go look inside it. You have somebody go drive by the property, look at it to get an idea of what the property is. Most people who can't pay their mortgage probably don't have brand new kitchens and flooring and everything else in their properties. So that's something you have to realize it's not comparable to the house next door that just got renovated um, because you got to really focus on. So when you say, you know, there, it is something tangible. Um, but one of the benefits of notes that we like to say is from compared to rentals is, you know, you're not dealing with the, the tenants, the toilets or the termites uh, for the most part, yeah. because if their toilet breaks, Great. You don't call your mortgage company. I mean, you know, I don't know if I don't. Um, and if I did, they'd probably laugh at me, but I also probably could never get anybody on the phone anyways um, <laughs> from the mortgage company. Uh, so that's one of the positives about it. If you're investing um, on the performing side or, you've asked, or if you have notes that are performing, it's, hey, look, I'm just a lender on this. And I just have a company that I, I hire to collect those payments for me. That's, that's awesome. And do you usually buy the notes that are in distress already or because you said you buy mm -hmm. groups or bundles of them? Yep. Is it really a mixed bag of some are performing, paying well, some are delinquent and, mm -hmm. and now you're going to have to take the steps to get them either back on track or, or go into like the foreclosure route that you're mm -hmm. saying before. Yep. So yeah, we like to buy the distressed assets because it, you can buy them at a discount. So similar to people who like to buy houses that need renovation, you know, you get them at a lower price, you put in, you know, roll up your sleeves, do a little elbow grease and work, and potentially you reap the benefits of that. Uh, so yeah, we buy them. Yeah, the, they call them pools uh, is what they call them in where okay. you buy groups of them. And typically, I like to keep a portfolio of about 70%, 60 to 70% distressed and 30 to 40% paying. And the reason why I like to keep my portfolio balanced is if I had all distressed, I have no money coming in the door and a lot of money outflowing for attorney fees or whatever may happen. When you have that balance, you got some money coming in that can, you know, balance with the expenses for the time being until you work out a strategy on that distressed uh, asset. And to give people an idea, uh, let's say it's a, you know, $150,000 house that they owe $100,000 on. 
uh, you know, depending on the state, you might pay anywhere from, you know, fifty to seventy thousand dollars for that note. Um, you know, again, ballpark and it fluctuates and varies, depends on seller and how distressed they are. But, you know, typically you'll pay anywhere from kind of 35 to 75 cents on the dollar for um, distressed debt. So that's another reason why if you're buying something that, you know, is distressed and you get them repaying, um, and then you can turn around and sell that a year or two down the line, if you bought it for 50 cents on a dollar, and then two years later, you're selling it for 75, 80, 85 cents on a dollar, because they're starting to pay again, you know, it provides a, a nice incentive, nice return to the investor. And you're doing yeah. a good thing by keeping somebody in their house. Yeah, that's uh, another a big thing. I know that I was uh, listening on bigger pockets um, to I'm forgetting his name, but he talks about subject to um, mm -hmm. And one of the big things was trying to keep them in their house in, so, in certain yep. circumstances. So mm -hmm. um, no one likes to be displaced. And obviously, it's an uncomfortable mm -hmm. position for everybody. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, it's a business. I know you're not over there like rooting for people to fail. So like everybody wants people to get back on track if they can, uh, well, which is a good, a good marker to hit. It's, it's a good effort. And I'm well, sitting here taking notes just so I can try to wrap my head around everything that you're saying. Well, it's interesting, though, because in most aspects of real estate, when things are, you know, if you have like a tenant, for example, that's not paying, you know, you just want to get them out of there. Yeah. You know, because it's, you know, basically get out of here. I just got to bring somebody else in. Uh, because it's your asset and it's not bringing in the money. On the notes, it's the way it's interesting because essentially if you look at the numbers compare in most instances and again there's always you know variations but if you look at what it's going to cost you to foreclose take that property back try and sell it and you know is an reo because technically it's real estate owned um at that point because you were the lender you know how much are you going to get and all the work you're going to have to do Compared to when you get it at a discount, reworking the plan with the borrower, it actually, not, I, I'm just going to say nine out of 10, but the majority of times, yeah, you're going to make more money by keeping them in the property. So unlike getting a renter who's not paying and get them out as fast as possible, here, you really want to try and work with them. So it actually is a win-win situation. That's one of the unique benefits. Now, Again, there's certain borrowers that don't want to play ball with you and there's nothing you can do about it. There's, you know, there's always going to be um, instances where unfortunately you do have to go down that legal route and so forth. But if the borrower wants to play ball, that's one of the things that we like to tell people early on is, you know, when you look at the numbers, you're going to probably do better off, you know, trying to play ball with them. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously in this industry, you're, you're balancing people and, and money and assets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as much as you want to just work with the assets, there are people involved and feelings mm -hmm. and emotions and all that stuff. So you hope that you find a borrower that it, that understands that you're not out to get them. Like you didn't mm -hmm. buy this note and think like, yes, I'm going to go evict these people out of their homes. That's not the perspective we're going at. 
It, it's not, but unfortunately, with the media and the reputation that banks have, and from a decade, well, now it's from almost 15 years ago, uh, what's gone on in banks with short sales back in the day, never responding to people or taking months or years to, you know, and people's, you know, trying to pay, but the banks wouldn't accept the money. And all they're doing is the fees and the interest accruing. And then basically it comes to a point where they're like, screw it and they just leave you know, is a bad reputation. And one of the things we try and have, like we don't personally speak to borrowers, we use licensed third party companies that do all of that, but we try and let them know, hey, look, this is a private, you know, it's a private institution that owns this. They can make decisions on the spot. You know, we're not like a large institution where, oh, can we, you know, modify this loan where if you went to a national lender, they're gonna take four months to probably agree to that. Yeah. I can literally on, on that phone call say, yes, no, or how about this and get it done it's a snap of a finger get the documents drafted the next day send a mobile notary to the house and you're done within a week yeah and there's that's the teeter-totter of okay we've got a big company that's got a lot of backing and maybe financially and manpower but they've got all the processes that and this is the way that they do it it goes one two three four that's it if we don't go one two three four it doesn't get done now you've got the smaller company over here that Yes, we're not as big as this big national conglomerate, mm -hmm. but we can pivot on a dime. Something yeah. comes up, we can do our own rules, we can make our own thing happen, which if a borrower has been beaten down by this big conglomerate bank mm -hmm. and is like, I'm so sick of it. And then you come in and you're like, hey, what do you need? This is what we need. Let's come to an agreement. Mm -hmm. It is more personable and hopefully you're finding more and more people are on board with it. Oh. I've, you know, I've spoken to several borrowers in the past and the first question I ask them will be, okay, how can we help you to get this resolved? And they're just blown away because they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, Hey, look, if I tell you that your payment's going to be a thousand dollars per month and you're like, I can't afford it. It makes zero sense for me to even propose it because we lost already and we're just going to be in the same place. Yep. Uh, so when you're trying and when they hear that from you and you explain, Hey, look, we're a small firm that, you know, we have, you know, dozen employees or whatever the case may be. And we're trying to, you know, we have, there's minimums that we have to reach and we'll let you, you know, it's gotta be at least this, um, but we can, you know, we'll work with you on that. And then, you know, again, with larger institutions, you know, they got their box and, at no yep. point in time do they ever vary from that box. It's like, okay, I get, they got the playbook that, you know, is sketched in. It's the same playbook and it's, you know, painful to go through that process where, you know, I'd say we have rules we have to follow, of course, but, you know, our playbook is what's going to work for you, you know, and how can we make this work? And within our limits, um, you know, ours is a much bigger circle that we can go outside the box on. Yeah. It, it reminds me on the, the lending side. I mean, Mm -hmm. You obviously in the notes section of it, but um, uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, mm -hmm. those loans, you're either yeah. in this box or, or you're we're out. Mm -hmm. Like it's your house and you are fitting in this box. Otherwise we can't help you. Mm -hmm. But then there's other private mortgages that uh, mortgage lenders that are like, it, we don't have a box. Just let's get this deal done and we'll work with you and you work with us and we'll get it done. Yep. Um I think that kind of lending is is being pushed more and more now because everybody's in a different situation. Uh, I think the secondary market has gotten way, way bigger too. So there's more and more opportunities uh, for people like you are in your position to, to get on notes uh, and succeed. So 
Yeah, I don't know and, if you're seeing that industry grow larger. It's definitely grown larger. Uh, and what's happened a little bit is it used to be much easier to be a little, I'll call it mom and pop shop, um, like, a, you know, an individual investor to start to do this. Uh, and it's gotten a little more challenging, uh, to be frank. And the reason why has been the government never in a million years, I think, ever thought that these loans would make their way down to mom and pop investors. Typically, they get bought, they get sold, securitized, and people invest in them. Now, these loans are being broken from being securitized, and hedge funds are buying them, and then they're making their way down. So the government hasn't really caught up to that yet in regards to the rules and the licensing. Over the last few years, they have been because just like any business, there's very scrupulous people out there who are lending when they shouldn't be lending or they're taking money, you know, too much money up front or what, you know, putting people in loans that are set to fail. And over the last three to four years, you've seen lawsuits against some of these large firms that were doing that. Uh, and, you know, the states have gotten a lot more strict um, on things. So the cost to do business has gotten a little more expensive because now, you know, the government's stepping in or the states are stepping in and say, okay, now you got to get a license to do this. And now I got to go spend $2,000 yeah. to invest in and do this in the state. And if somebody's got $50,000, you know, 2%, that's 4% of your money, uh, you know, on deals where, you know, that's, you know, it's consider, you know, it's a, a significant expense when you're getting started. Yeah, and I didn't even think about the governance of that. Where is this a federal or is this a state issue? Because obviously, you said you can buy notes in whatever state you want. Mm -hmm. uh, and are those notes held primarily with with smaller like town banks, or are those nationwide? Is that the delineation between where it takes over in terms of federal or state, mm -hmm. or is there even a, a definitive line of who takes what? Yeah, it's really state. It's okay. state by state. And unfortunately, the states are very different. It's not like, you know, in one state, you know, you might need a mortgage lending license, another state, they'll call it a debt collection, another state, it's called a servicing license, and the requirements are all different. So it's not like a, you know, again, I'm not a real estate agent, but I'm guessing to be a real estate agent, it's pretty pretty much I would think the same in every state um, on how to do that. With notes, it's completely different on the requirements and the application. There is one website you go to and called the NMLS uh, where you have to get, you know, get your licenses yeah. through. But certain states you need a license, certain states you don't, certain states you need a certain certification, certain states you don't, certain states you have to have certain financial requirements. Um, typically the feds don't get involved unless um, it's really the SEC getting in, not on the notes, but how the person's raising their money. And yeah. usually if it's a significant amount, because the SEC, I don't believe will play with somebody who's got like a million dollars because it would cost them 10 million to probably <laughs> go at that. Now that the saying doesn't mean they won't, it just means typically they'll put it at the state level to go after people who are doing things that they probably shouldn't be doing. Yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating of how many different uh, rules and regulations you're going to have to be aware of if you're going to go out of state. And uh, it sounds like you are out of out of state already. Uh, I'm in, I've invested in 40 different states. Wow. Okay. Do you have a favorite? Other than a, Wisconsin. Yeah, I have a not favorite. Um, so Ooh, Ohio. not favorite, Illinois. No, Ohio. 
Really? So I, joked that, I joked that Ohio stands for only headaches in Ohio. Um, <laughs> so, well, part of why I don't say Illinois is we stay out of Crook County. Um, I mean, Cook County. Uh, so we stay out. We'll of edit there. that out for all the Illinois yeah. listeners. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I think anybody who's in most real estate spaces knows, uh, you know, Cook County is a very challenging jurisdiction. Yeah. Uh, but no. Um, so favorite states really, you know, I'm in Virginia. Virginia is a good state because uh, it's a lender friendly state. Uh, I would say without getting into politics, most red states are lender friendly. Most blue states are borrower friendly. Uh, you look at the Northeast or like New York, your foreclosure time could be up to five years in New yeah, York. I've heard about the struggles in the Northeast. Yeah. And when you look at that, you know, if they're not paying taxes and you have to front taxes at $10,000 a year, you know, that's 50,000 extra dollars that you're out of pocket. Now you take that same property in Georgia, today's Friday, May, um, you know, 6th, 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 if you had a, somebody not paying in Georgia, their foreclosure sale will be the first Tuesday of July. So to give it's you an idea, quick, huh? yeah. So to give you an idea of the differences, most people love Texas. Uh, Texas is also a very quick state as well. Um, you know, the Southeast is probably where the prime majority of our assets are located. I say go to Rust Belt. If you go from Wisconsin, Michigan, and just kind of like put your hand across like the board of states and swath down to the Southeast, yeah, that's primarily. So just uh, and, east of the Mississippi is where we're staying. Yeah, and. A lot of it is because uh, that's where the largest amount of delinquencies are. Home values in those areas typically tend to be under two hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand. You know, California. You know, typically, you know, the banks or the large institutions hold that paper because of the value of the property and the value of the asset. One yeah. thing that people have to realize is whether it's a fifty thousand dollar house or a fifty million dollar house. The cost to foreclose on that property in the legal process is the same process. So when you think about it from an institutional standpoint, do they want to focus on their delinquent loans that are like a million dollar loans, or do they want to think about the ones in, you know, Southern Ohio that are $75,000, $50,000 properties, you know, for them, it's not worth their time or effort. They'd rather yeah. sell those off and keep the ones because, you know, most institutions also you know, they're limited for bandwidth on their, you know, how many people, how many you can manage. So if they have an influx of delinquencies, they're going to take the cream of the crop. They can't manage these other ones. So what are they going to do? If we can't do anything with them, they're just going to sit there. So let's sell them, get the money and then go back and buy some of the bigger assets. So, yeah. Do you think that's, I mean, it's kind of weird to think about there's a pocket of delinquencies and you said that Southeast seems to have a big pocket of delinquencies. Mm -hmm. Do you guys look into the analytics of why that might be, or is there one root cause or is it all different? Uh, I mean, we've somewhat looked at it, but I think really what it comes down to is, you know, jobs. You know, when you really think about it, you know, most people, you know, and that's one of the interesting things when you own the property, you know, if, you know, uh, you know, if we own our, you own your house and so forth, if your house drops 20% in the next month, as long as you have your job, do you really care? 
I mean, you're still paying your mortgage yeah. um, from that perspective. Uh, now, if it dropped 80%, you might say, hey, you know, maybe I need to move somewhere. And, you know, some people might strategically walk away from it, but most people don't. But it's really the job market. And, you know, finding jobs and where the jobs are is, you know, critical uh, because like I said, house prices are going to fluctuate, go up and down over time. I know the last few years, it's been great for housing, but you know, most times in a down economy or if house pricing starts to slide, interest rates are going up now. Um, yep. You know, I think part of it is the jobs would also 65% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. And, you know, with inflation going up, the cost of everything going up, property taxes, because all these jurisdictions are getting crushed with COVID, probably that's going to go up. You know, it's you're, the people who are making, you know, it's a lot of the blue collar workers who are making, you know, anywhere from 30 to $75,000 per year, uh, all their expenses go up. You know, they get, yeah. you know, unfortunately, you know, they're, they need some assistance. So, yeah. you know, that's where you typically see it. People who live in areas like I'll use what Northern Virginia, you know, the average house here is probably, I don't know, $750,000. Um, you know, we got the federal government here that, you know, pays people very, very well. Most of those people, you know, have, you know, their house and they also have some savings and money aside for the rainy day fund. It's much more challenging or difficult for, you know, some of the blue collar people or people in other regions to try and save that nest egg based on the data that says 65% of people live paycheck to paycheck. So, yeah, that's an alarming uh, percentage. I didn't know it was that high, I can but see now that you say it, I definitely can see it. I just don't think I ever tried to put a number on it. Yeah, Like and I knew I, it was a majority, but. Yeah. And I think that number came from like DS news or, you know, that's not my number. I read that somewhere. Yeah. Now, it's accuracy. I'm just, I just remember that because it was like mind blowing when I saw what it was. Yeah. If anybody wants to fact check the number they can, but I think, I, I think that's ballpark. <laughs> right. I mean, that, that seems like it would be, be more in line with what it would be. Yeah. And I think also, you know, a lot of investors, you know, live in, you know, coastal areas as well. And again, I know you're not, but I, I wish think, I was yeah. born in the wrong state. Okay. I want to be in like Texas or Southern California, Florida, like somewhere warm. Yeah. I'll take cold again any day. Yeah. That's too ready. But too cold. I, I think people don't realize, you know, housing in other different markets. And because you don't have to, it's like, oh yeah, I've lived in you know Massachusetts um, for a while where it's expensive. Then I lived in DC area. So again, I've lived in two expensive areas when I got into notes and realized that I literally um, could buy a house for the same price in certain areas that I paid for my stove in my house. Um, you know, it's <laughs> ridiculous. I mean, I had a property in Flint, Michigan uh, that, uh, you know, I think we paid, um, you know, $5,000 for. And then we turned so around. There was a story on Bigger Pockets. Someone got started investing and it was mm -hmm. a single mom. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if it was one kid or two kids, but mm -hmm. she was telling her backstory and mm -hmm. she was like, I made the jump into real estate. I bought my first mm -hmm. house, $5,000. And I'm sitting there like, what house are you buying for $5,000? But they went into the economics behind it in that area. And oh, it made and sense. I could tell you, this house was not a bad house. Right. Uh, it was an REO that they, um, 
the company had a loan with somebody on it. They stopped paying. They walked out. They gave them cash for keys back. And as part of a pool, they wanted to get rid of it because they were closing the fund. It was like a 12, three bedroom, two bath, 1200 square foot house. It needed some clean out. It needed, um, you know, basically adjustment of the cabinet doors and some other things, but it wasn't that. I mean, I, I could share some houses with you that would just blow your mind. Um, it wasn't, you know, it was basically pretty much livable. So we, you know, did some cosmetic stuff to it, got it fixed up and end up getting somebody in there um, and essentially seller finance it for like 35,000. Um, and then, you know, held the note for a while and then actually sold it to a good friend of mine, bought the note and so forth. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, even, crazy. even if it was, $25,000 or $35,000. I mean, again, up in Boston, you can't buy a parking space for under $75,000, never mind a house. So yeah. it's, it's very different. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to see the house prices in different areas. And um, even when we're looking at the coastal cities, mm -hmm. to try and find a yeah. two bedroom, one bathroom house that here mm -hmm. might be, uh, I'm trying to think of the last two bedroom, it would have been 100000 I bought my last two bedroom, one bath house yep. out in California. Mm -hmm. I don't know, 400 oh, maybe depends. Could be even yeah. more than that. I've got somebody I know who lives in Northern California and 1200 square foot homes in their neighborhood go for like $2 million. I mean, it's blows your I mind. Wish. Yeah. So one of the things that kind of I want to leads into that I forgot to even mention is one of the other things that's great about notes is your capital, because I started with about roughly about $30,000. That was some retirement money I had in a, it was a solo 401k, which most, you know, an IRA essentially. Um, there's a difference, but most people know them by IRAs. Uh, because what can happen is like you just mentioned a hundred thousand dollar house. Well, let's say that person's got a mortgage that they've been paying for several years and stuff and say the balance of that loan is only $20,000. Now, you know, you might only, and if they're paying, you might pay 15,000 for that note on a hundred thousand dollar property. So yeah. that's a great thing with notes is while you're backed by the property, the amount of money owed on that note can vary significantly. So we'll see a lot of notes that have balances of 15 to $35,000. And with that, you can pick up, you know, several of them for, you know, like 10 grand. I bought, you know, some notes with $7,000 balance left that I paid like $4,000 for. So it's something that does, can have a low cost of entry. And when you get started, that was one of the things I did is like, hey, look, I'm not, you know, throwing all this money at one note, because if I did something wrong, it all goes awry where I bought yeah. like four notes starting out and I bought some in bankruptcy, some that were distressed, some are performing. And I paid four of them with the average was like around 7,500 per loan because they had those low balances. But I basically got that experience instead of going paying some guru, you know, 10, 20, $30,000 to learn it. Hey, I'll learn by doing. And with four of them, like, okay, even if I screw up one of them, you know, cost of doing business type thing. I'd rather learn yeah. the hard way than pay somebody to teach me that then just continues to sell me on additional training. So, yeah. And there's so much information out. I mean, you mentioned bigger pockets and if you're mm -hmm. thinking about getting into real estate, other than this podcast, please listen to bigger pockets because they bring in people from all different facets of real estate. If you mm -hmm. want to get into anything, there's going to be multiple, multiple shows on bigger pockets on that topic. Mm -hmm. With, if you go to their website and buy their pro membership, they've got reading material and books mm -hmm. and all this information. Mm -hmm. But really, I listen to them for 
maybe two and a half years before I even committed to doing real estate. And I was like, all right, now I feel ready. And I got into my first one and I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. So even all the listening, all the reading you can do until you get doing it, it's going to feel foreign. You're going to feel like an idiot. You're going to feel like you have no idea what's going on. It's going to be okay. <laughs> now, the analogy I like to use is, you know, if you've ever golfed, you know, and, you know, if you, you can sit there and watch a million golf videos on how to hit off the tee. Yep. And it is a waste of time because the moment you stand there and you know, you put the club in your hand and you try and get that adjustment, that swing and so forth until you swing and hit the ball, that's reality. And that's real estate investing. Everything you yep. did before that, it's great that you can watch it and you might pick up a few tips and so forth, but until you realize, okay, keep the shoulder under the chin or whatever the case may be, you know, until you get up there and hit it and then realize, oh, I opened my wrist and it took a, you know, a hard, sharp right, or I, you know, rolled my wrist and took the hard left, you know, that's the adjustment. And then that's what real estate investing is, is you got to get up on the tee and just start swinging. And that's the way you're going to learn. And I think yeah. appropriate. I was just golfing the other day. so <laughs> My slice is brutal. Having the baseball swing my yep. wrist open or, or I don't know what they call it in golf, but like I snap my wrist is what you yep. say it in baseball. Do the same thing for golf. And this thing just takes off on me. Dog leg lefts though. I will do so great. Yeah. I'll aim right <laughs> of the fairway. It'll end yeah. up in the fairway somewhere. Those are perfect. Yep. So. Uh, you had, you had brought up um, funding and I wanted to touch on that because mm -hmm. it early on the show, you talked about syndications and all that. Mm. So yep. you said you started with 30,000. The rest of all this is all syndication, which means other people's money in Correct. layman's terms. <clears throat> yep. So go into that. How did you find that? Because that's a huge obstacle for people getting into real estate. I don't have money. Yep. That's like the first objection they'll throw. I don't have money. Yeah. So the... So yeah, the first 30,000 was basically my own. And you're right, it is really challenging to get into real estate without any money. Uh, so you, I always tell people, you need something. And I'm a big proponent, honestly, of don't take people's money until you've used your own and you, you've gone through that process. Yeah. So what I ended up doing was, this is interesting, and if you, you can probably relate to this. So I started doing it um, you know, with my own money. And then I started joining some groups, some Facebook groups, as well as, um, you know, some weekend training courses that were low dollar, maybe it was $100 or $500 to take like a week, uh, a training seminar and so forth. And a lot of times that training person would give you the, you'd ask for like, hey, can I get the list of the other attendees? Or you go into like, if they're using whichever software, look at everyone else and grab their email address. So, you know, I bought the first four. Uh, then after I did that, I did take a little bit. It took me about six months before I bought a note. First off, I did six months of research, you know, analysis paralysis. Everybody has it. It's going to happen. Bought four notes. And then uh, after about six months after I bought them, my father passed away. So it kind of took, you know, a few months break from there. Yep. And then basically some of those loans I had, one of them paid off. So I kind of like reinvested, got some of my money back, had a little extra money still on the sidelines, put that in. And then what I started to do is most people, you know, probably realize this, probably 90 to 95% of real estate investors who want to be a real estate investor 
don't become a real estate investor. And what I was finding is I'd be on all these classes with people and I'd see the same people everywhere. So what I started doing is reaching out and just saying, Hey, just checking in, you know, how you doing with notes and so forth. Just curious if you bought any, love to share stories and stuff. And I'd always get back, ah, you know, I haven't bought anything. I'm frustrated, blah, blah, blah. So then I started reaching out and said, Hey, look, you know, I've got, you know, I've been getting some deals come my way and stuff. If you want a joint venture on them, you know, basically we can do a JV deal. And, you know, basically I call it like a learn and earn as well. I can share some of my stuff to give you a little bit more experience because a lot of the, you know, call it the big gurus and stuff. They don't have the time um, to work with you. So I'd reach out to people in this training groups right off the bat. I got like seven or eight people like, oh, that would be awesome. And I'm like, oh, okay. That's a really good idea. (laughs) So, um, so I got like seven or eight people. Then all of a sudden, you know, I went and bought seven or eight notes. And then all of a sudden, they've got a friend as well. And then all of a sudden, seven to eight turned into 10 to 12, who turned into 15 to 20. Next thing I know, I've got like 50 JV partners. And all of a sudden, you know, I was also, you know, working full time and stuff and managing everything. And the challenge is, so with a JV, it's got to be one person per asset. You can't mix co-mingle and stuff. And, you know, the ways to make sure you do it is they have to have some active interest in it as well and so forth. But, you know, so I was doing that, but every month I'd report and it's basically 50 reports I'd have to produce every month. So I'm on top of the full-time job, on top of kids, on top of the wife. So eventually in 20, what was it? 2019, um, in late 2018, I started, so I always like to, you know, think big, uh, you know, call it the BHAG, Big Hairy Audacious Goal. So I had my attorney. I like that. I'm going to steal that one. Yeah. Um, it's from the book uh, Traction by Gino Wickman, I believe. Great book. It's uh, on my list of books to read so, among other like 20 to 30 other what, books. But the best thing about it is he basically has you create a one page business plan because everyone creates this business plan that's like 50 pages long and you never read it. You never go to it. It's one page business plan of columns of actionable items broken down by immediate, the quarter, the year, and like the three year. And it's like, and I'll gladly email me afterwards. I'll I'll share the template with you. It's awesome. Um, So, so yeah, so I had my attorney start putting together documents for um, to do a syndication. So it was a regulation D 506 B, which is um, an S it's exempt from SEC registration, but it allowed me to, Uh, I couldn't solicit to investors, but what I was going to do is take my existing investor pool and kind of basically merge them all into one entity. Instead of reporting 50 different times, it's like, hey, look, I can just take, you know, basically instead of one and one asset, it's 50 assets with 50 different people, but they own a piece of every single one. So it also reduces their risk. Yeah. So I had him put that together and it was putting together. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, I was just doing my thing and a seller comes to me and says, Hey, we've got 90 loans we need to sell and we need to sell them as an entire pool. And the pool roughly, let's say it was a million dollars for the pool. It was roughly, I think it was like 800 and something thousand. So it was only like $9,000 per asset. Um, and there was a good amount of them that were performing in this pool. The balance on the loans at the time were, we bought it for 40 cents on the dollar. So it was roughly like 2.2 million of balance owed on the mortgage that we got for like, you know, so I'm like, 
oh my God, how do I do this? So I called um, a partner who I've done some work with and actually have the, who was my pod, she, my co-host of the podcast at the time. And it's like, okay, we're going to do this. And she's like, yeah, right. I'm like, oh no, we're going to go do this. <laughs> so we literally raised $900,000 in like a week wow. from investors wow. that we knew. And we bought these 90 assets. And at the time I had also started to do a podcast as well. And between those two events, that to me was kind of like, you know, the tipping, you know, where, you know, the tip, everything tipped and all of a sudden my business from there just started to grow and grow and grow. Um, so, you know, when you, and it's a typical way most investors do it is okay. Start myself, go small, small. You don't want to get too big, too fast because that's where yeah. you can get yourself in trouble. Most businesses fail because of cash flow, not because of profit. So we slowly kept growing and then all of a sudden kind of hit that point of that opportunity came and I just took it. And basically and the re one of the reasons I took it were other people wanted it, but they didn't want to take certain assets in there. And it's like, Hey, look, if 85 of the 80 of these assets are really good and 10 are junk, guess what? You're still making a really yeah. good deal. So I think some people miss that mindset. So, yeah, so that was, uh, we put that into a syndication and then that went really well. So I just continued to, um, then I made the shift to go to the, what's called the 506 C, which only allows accredited investors, um, to invest, but I could advertise. So when opportunities came up, um, you know, a million dollars, you know, somebody had a million dollars of assets, I'd go out and raise a million dollars and then go buy the pool and put those investors in there. So, you know, five times we've done that now. And then we're working on a new, you know, a new um, venture right now that, uh, you know, I can't, unfortunately, from law regulations, I can't say too much about it. Um, but it's going to be allow for both accredited and not accredited investors to invest in a very low investment amount. Um, so basic, we're really going to open it up um, which hopefully will allow us to raise a lot more uh, money to go out and invest um, in additional assets. Uh, you know, similar to real estate over the last few years, our pricing has gotten significantly more expensive, just like real estate has. Uh, yeah. You know, the returns still can be there. Um, I will tell people from a returns perspective on performing loans, you know, expect between 8 and 12% uh, annual return. And then on non-performing stuff, we used to try and target about a 30% return on those. Um, that's probably dropped down now to the low to mid 20s is what you want to target because you have to factor in the risk. There is a lot of risk involved in this. Yeah. You know, people got to be careful of they're not trying to buy some of this stuff for 10 to 15% because your margins are, you know, if you think of a $30,000 asset, a 10% margin is only $3,000. $3,000 yeah. is an attorney misfiles your foreclosure complaint. And then that's a $3,000 thousand dollar bill to refile it so you want to make sure you leave you know those you know some margin um just like if you're renovating a property you know if yep. somebody tells you 50 grand uh you know budget 60 to 75 just the budget so you have some margin for yourself yeah yeah and those are things that with experience you come to know uh yeah. where you need to create that buffer and the more and more you do it the more and more in sync with it you are and you're aware of them as they come up what I really liked what you did when you started was uh, a lot of the people starting, you reach out to and you're like, hey, how's it going? They're like, I haven't started. And then you kind of gave them like the power of numbers. You like brought them together. Like, all right, rather than all of us doing it by ourselves, 
-hmm. let's all come together. I'm mm -hmm. sure they felt a little safer making mm -hmm. the jump with someone else who's already been doing it. Yep. I'm imagining that's what that came from. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when you brought them all in together uh, and they were able to take a little chunk of the whole pie yep. uh, to lower their mm -hmm. uh, liability on it, I'm sure they're all happy with that one too. Yeah. And the way it's also, I frame it for people again, I'm a numbers guy. So I just give me a spreadsheet and, you know, I'm like, a, I'm like a little kid with a lollipop, you know, you're just going to sit there and you can leave the kid alone for three hours. I'm the same on the spreadsheet. Uh, so the way I, <laughs> Natasha likes that one. Um, I've never heard lollipop and spreadsheet in the same sentence. So, yeah. um, so, but the way I'd frame it too is, you know, when you look at the startup costs, of okay i gotta get you know software i gotta access to certain things like people use prop stream as a company a lot of people use or i use data tree you know you basically gotta set up your email the website all that information when you look at what your startup cost is which is a few thousand dollars minimum and if somebody has like 25 grand to invest and you say hey look you know i can you know, I can target, you never promise, please don't ever promise returns yeah. to anybody. I can promise, don't promise. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know, I can, you know, I'm going to target to get you a 12 to 15% return on your money. If you try and go do it yourself with 25,000 and you got 2000 in startup costs, you got to basically be at 30%. You know, or whatever the numbers is, I would show them that and explain to them. And then this doesn't even include the amount of time that you spend on these assets. What's your time worth? And I spend most of the time and then confer with you when you share that with everybody and then explain to them, you know, sometimes they're hesitant, but then when you start sharing the stories, because, you know, basically if you ever watch the show cops, I don't think it's on anymore, but that's kind of they like brought it back. Oh, they did. They, okay. did, they brought it so, back. Like anytime you think you're having a bad day, you know, just go watch cops. You're going to feel much, much better. But it's similar. Those stories are similar to like some of our borrowers. Like there's stuff that you just can't believe some of these stories. I mean, I've had stories where I've had dead borrowers show up in court. Um, you know, the borrower is deceased, but then somebody shows up in court saying they're the borrower and the attorney's like, you're dead. Like, you know, um, so because it's somebody pretending to be them because really? they're trying. Yeah. Because it's, it's usually a family member that they're living in the house and haven't been paying because they're like, Oh, well, you know, the dead guy, they think, Oh, the dead guy doesn't have to pay his mortgage anymore. Uh, no, you still, somebody's still got to pay and then yeah. you got to go through probate and stuff. So they'll show up and basically be like, Oh yeah, well, we'll try. Can we get a modification? It's like, you're dead. Like, you know, so, uh, interesting. Yeah. It's amazing how many, um, I think the, I have one borrower who set the record for COVID um, because I believe probably like seven or eight times when the span of like three months they had COVID. Um, so wow. every, yeah, you know, so. That's devastating. Know. Yes. So, you know, every time that you call, it's like, I can't work because I have COVID. I can't work. I have COVID. I mean, it's like, you know, maybe you should, you know, stay home and, you know, stay away from people for a little bit of time and stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. So but, I have a, a big question on their immune system for catching COVID seven yeah. times in a month. Yeah. I mean, I've had people whose grandmothers, you know, again, I don't know how many times they've been adopted because, you know, they've had about seven grandmothers pass away, um, you know, as well. So, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, yeah, very interesting. Um, some you of need stories. to create you need to create a collage of all the excuses for well, all the bizarre scenarios. You know, it's yeah. almost like it's almost like with contractors too. Like all the excuses that, from contractors' mouths, I feel like are the same that you are doing. Yes, and it's the stuff that you can't make this stuff up. 
you yeah. literally can't make this stuff up. I mean, if I was that creative, I'd be writing books. I you know, um, with all the excuses. That's what I was thinking of doing for my contractors. Yeah. So, what are those boards, Natasha? You may know what they are. Um, it looks back on all the things you type, but the more words you type, the bigger it is on the collage. Oh yeah, I know what you're talking yeah. about. I don't know what they're like called. a Venn diagram almost. Kind of, but it's yeah. It's a whole, it's a picture with all yeah. the words that you see yeah. or use in a year. And the more you use that word, the bigger space it yep. takes up in the whole picture. Yep. So I guess like COVID would be like the whole right side of this thing. Mm -hmm. So that's funny. Man, yeah, it's 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 fun to hear. I mean, it's not fun. I won't say fun. It's interesting to hear all of the excuses that could come with mm -hmm. with with real estate or whatever facet or industry you're in within real estate. Uh, because working with tenants, you get the same excuses of like, Hey, where's the, where's the rent? Well, this and that, and this, okay. It works yeah. once the second, fifth, 10th time. It's like, we got to figure something else out. I like say entertaining, but in the same token, I will caution people. Like I'll talk about this and yes, you make money. I mean, I've had properties that literally I've had $13,000 trash outs in properties I've had properties that are just completely destroyed um, as well. I've had properties where the borrowers set the property on fire the day before foreclosure. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I've had, you know, properties or, you know, where somebody was murdered on a property as well. Oh, so, you know, it's, there's also reality that is, you know, you can, I don't want to term joke, but you can get, you know, some comedic entertainment relief out of some of these crazy stories, but also um, there's also, you know, real life things. I had a bar recently who is a grandmother who had had trouble making some payments and she was in a major car accident where um, one of her grandchild's past children passed away in the car accident. Um, and basically she was driving. I don't, it was a single car accident. So I don't know, you know, again, yeah. the assumption again would be probably some, you know, her fault or something happened with the car or something. But when you hear stories like that, that's where the emp empathetic side, you still have to, you know, make sure you have the service to like understand like, Hey, don't call the borrower up screaming at, you know, again, you, they should never scream, but ask the borrower where their payment is, you know, yeah. console them and ask them, okay, you know, basically, Hey, take care of what you need to take care of. And, you know, let us know what works for you. Um, and again, there's that business side of things where, you know, you have to, can have a, a, you know, watch your margins, but there's also the empathetic side of things of, you know, now with, e, you know, I'll call it ESG, um, you know, environmental, social and government side of things where you also got to be, have a heart, you know, yeah. and what I found in our business is, you know, the term pigs get happy, uh, hogs get slaughtered is very, very key in this business where, yeah, I mean, you want to make money, of course you do. And you want to try and make as much as possible, but you don't want to get greedy. You know, that's yeah. the thing. I've seen people really get greedy in this business and they get crushed. Yep. It, it catches up to them eventually. Yep. It'll, it'll be the, the really good high upswing. Yep. And mm -hmm. then you're going to either cross the wrong person or push somebody too hard mm -hmm. and it will go faster downward than mm -hmm. it did go up. Yep. I, I know somebody that had a property that you know, they weren't in it for a lot. Let's just say, well, they're in it for probably like 50,000. And, you know, basically, you know, they had somebody that would have given them like 75,000 for the property. 
which, you know, and it was a very quick turnaround. It was like within six months. So 50% in six months, that's like grand slam yeah. type of return. And you're like, nope, I'm going to, you know, basically, uh, you know, they didn't take the offer. And then ba uh, basically, and it was like a short payoff because a person owed like $100,000 on the loan. They ended up spending about two years going through foreclosure, spending all the money. And at the end of the day, basically the property ended up only being worth like $65,000. So they end up basically, really? on the, they, they, they still made like five grand on the deal. Yeah. But, you know, it was one of, you know, I'm a fan of, you know, bird in hands better than two in the bush type thing. And, you know, I've got certain, you know, if I can make 50% in six months um, on a deal, you know, I'm taking that deal probably nine times out of 10, uh, you know, based on, you know, what the situation is, but yeah. uh, you know, they were, they didn't want, because the person owed, you know, like a hundred and something thousand, they thought, you know, they were like, I'm not giving this person 25 grand for free. And I'm like, you're not give. well, yes, they're eliminating 25 grand worth of debt, but I don't care what about them. What's it for your pocket? It's no different. Like yeah. when you buy real estate, you know, and like, oh, well, they only bought it for a hundred thousand. Now I'm buying it for one forty. I don't care what somebody else bought it for. If at one forty, I'm gonna make really good money. Great, because yeah. if I'm paying them that, they're gonna bring me more deals later on, and I'll continue to make more money. People don't yeah. think in that sense. Yeah, and you've got to look at the long game of real estate. It's not a mm -hmm. one transaction. Then I just did real estate. No, it's a, it's a process that keeps going for years and years and years. And you got to look at the long game. Yep. Um, reading a book right now, and it kind of reminds me of uh, something his grandma was telling him. It said, uh, be nice to people on the way up because you might meet them on the way down. Oh, or yeah. something along that yep. line. And mm -hmm. that's the same thing in real estate. Treat everybody with respect, whether they're a tenant, whether there's somebody, mm -hmm. another investor that you're bringing in. Um, mm -hmm. Not to say that you're going to come back down, but you're going to meet them again. You're going to cross paths with them again. You mm -hmm. might as well make it good and, and uh, productive for everybody. Respectful. And that, and that's a mistake I made early on because I am ultra type A and personality. And I know I've ticked people off and, you know, I, you know, had my beefs with people early on and, you know, basically, and this was when I was at the bottom working my way up and I just, you know, view my, you know, I'm like the pit bull just, you know, going at it and stuff. And I look back now and I've reached out to people and I've apologized. I've reached back, you know, and so forth and said, Hey, yeah, I was a jerk back then. And, you know, so forth. So that's one of the things like early on. Yeah. I've made those mistakes and it's a really small niche market, real estate notes is even smaller. Everybody knows yeah. everybody um, yeah. in note space. So, uh, you know, you basically don't want to, you know, don't want to create enemies. Yeah, definitely. For sure. Definitely. Well, that was fascinating. This was the first show on notes that we've had. Yeah. Um, I feel like we didn't even cover like half of what notes actually are. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure we could go on and on. Uh, mm -hmm. We may have to schedule a second show to come back and talk about the last part. Cause I know that there's yeah. a couple questions that I had that I wanted to ask that we're not going to get to. Okay. Um, so we'll have to schedule that back. Uh, but that was fascinating. I learned a lot about notes Natasha, what does your notebook look like? Uh, it's it's pretty full. It's pretty full right now. And my head's still spinning. So I'm going to have to do some further research and like no. really try to wrap my head around everything. Okay, Natasha, I'm going to give you one thing to walk away with with your notebook. All right. Go get one of these. What is that? It's called the Remarkable. Oh, yes. I've seen those. It is awesome. And it's a digital notebook. It feels like you're writing on paper. 
And I'm the type of person that when I used to carry notebooks, I'd have seven of them and I'd always grab the wrong one or where did I leave that note? Here, you basically create your own notebooks. You hit the button, it opens a tab. You take your notes, you hit a button, you can email it to yourself. It can, if you write neat enough, I don't. It can convert it into text for you as well. Um, you can create, put templates on there for different things. Um, and then basically the background is that template. So if you have like meeting notes or, you know, if you, you know, want to work out or do your schedule or your diet, all that stuff can be the background. And it's just like, you know, writing on a piece of paper that was, um, you know, basically, you know, printed with that information on it. So my husband needs one of those like desperately. I'm going to surprise mm -hmm. him with one of those, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it, I, I show that to attorneys and they're just like, oh my God, because they, with all the legal pads, I found out, um, saw this about a year, year and a half ago. And I'm like, oh, it's a savior. Is that links up to Wi-Fi or? Yep, links up to Wi-Fi, so you can email it to yourself uh, as well. Um, you know, email. Yeah, that would be awesome. With uh, I'm thinking about applications within our business. Like my foreman could take it, and yeah. he always writes down like material mm -hmm. lists or what's going on or questions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you could just email it. And the, I mean, people sometimes get a little upset because they're like, "Well, it's not an iPad." And it's like it's not meant to be. It's yeah, not meant yeah. to have apps and stuff. It's a lot more, less expensive. It's meant to take notes. You know, yeah. you can read on it as well. But one of the things I like to do with it as well is if I'm like watching, uh, you know, say, you know, I sign up for like some like, you know, podcasts, I have a podcast and I was watching something on YouTube marketing. I was on like a weekend, you know, weekend thing that I signed up for and they send out in advance, like all the speakers and like, you know, with the PowerPoint where it's got the picture and then like the notes on the side you can take, yeah. I put that into my remarkable, um, and basically, you know, download it, put it in there. And then as a speaker spoke on that page, I just made the notes and so forth. And, you know, it was all there. And at the end of the thing, I just hit send email to myself now, instead of trying to save the notes and then go put them in a scanner and everything else it's yeah. all it's all done that way awesome. interesting right natasha's googling it now i seriously <laughs> got <laughs> caught seriously this is awesome the coolest thing i've ever seen awesome well yes we're gonna have to get you back on again and this is this was mind-boggling and really good yeah, it's something that I definitely want to get into once I'm done with the the development and building side of things. I'm still not done there, but but that's definitely something that I've read on, I've listened. It's an interesting, fascinating world. So we will have to talk again on that. Yeah, it's like anything. I recommend everyone diversify their portfolio. You know, have some rentals, you might do some new construction, might do some fix and flips, you know, notes is another thing, you know, it's passive uh, from that can be passive. The one downside I'll mention to notes is it's all considered ordinary income. That's the one thing. There's no depreciation or anything. It's all yeah. ordinary income. So that's the one thing that kind of, you know, is a, a Debbie Downer on it. If you're making money. Yeah, it'll be worth it. The tax, it'll be worth it. Exactly. Yeah. So, so if I have to pay Uncle Sam, I don't mind because it means I'm making money. Exactly. So that's we're going to end on an up, uphill there on that go. one. Uh, but we appreciate the time. Thank you so much. It was a wealth of information. Thanks for, for sharing it for me and the viewers. Um, looking forward to the next show where we can expand on it a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me. All right. Have a good weekend. Bye. Hopefully you get some Bye. warm weather out there. Hopefully. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Talk to you soon.